good morning. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, my wife hates it when I use this word, is nestled right between chapter 9 and chapter 11. Okay? Chapter 10, Acts 10. I'm going to pray up front and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Sound good? You all ready? You glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Hallelujah. We said that about 90 times a minute ago. Pretty cool. Never get tired of saying that. Father God, thank you for this tremendous opportunity, Lord, to unfold your word. Um, That is a glorious thing and it's a fearful thing. You've entrusted such things to men, of which I am. And I know me, I know my tendencies, Lord, I know my sin, my sins are always before me, and uh, it's a, a challenging thing, Lord, to teach your word. It's holy, it is perfect. In a spiritual, spiritual sense, I am those things before you, but I have this flesh nature, and I mess things up. Even in our listening, Lord, that can be distorted by sin and by the devil. And I believe that, Lord, you will prevail today, as you always do. Open our hearts and minds to your word, Lord, guard my tongue, my lips, and we are going to look at one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. We're going to begin to look at this phenomenal chapter, Lord. Teach us many things through it, Lord. May we become not mere hearers of the Word, but doers. Have your way here today, Jesus. Teach us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Last week we wrapped up chapter 9, obviously. How many of you were here during that time? Probably the majority of you. I know a handful of you guys missed. You got work. You got things going on. Uh, But we did wrap up chapter 9. It seems like we were in it for a while, but that might be because we took a long pause while we were in it to do other things. Uh, We learned last week in our last section about a gal named Tabitha who lived in Yopa and had fallen ill and then died and then was brought back to life by the apostle Peter. God then used the miracle of Tabitha's resuscitation uh, to draw many, many of Tabitha's townsmen uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was like a little revival that broke out uh, immediately following that amazing miracle. Uh, This morning, we will begin to expound on Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is a very important, very significant chapter in the Bible. But before we dive into it, I'd like to provide you with an overview that will help to illustrate its importance, its its significance. Now, I have three examples. It's going to take me a little bit of time to, to go through them. They're very important 
They're kind of background. They're, like I said, they're kind of fundamental, foundational to the nature of the whole chapter. They illustrate the chapter's importance. Um, I had never, I have read Acts chapter 10 several times in the past, uh, but had never picked up on some of these major themes and these major reasons why and examples why it's so significant. So I'm going to go through them in a very practical way, just kind of in a point way. I'll begin by giving you the first example, which is Acts chapter 10 records a turning point in redemptive history. Okay, a turning point in redemptive history. In this amazing chapter, we see the activation of the third stage in God's global evangelistic plan, and we might even call it a strategy. Okay, we see the third stage sort of initialized. It, it begins. God had these stages, and this is the chapter where we see sort of the, the you know, the, the I don't know if you'd call it the final stage, I suppose, but we see it kick in. Uh, you may recall from previous sermons how I briefly touched on the evangelistic stages that are present in the book of Acts. I'm going to draw these out in greater detail so that it'll help to really build a case for 10. The first stage was the evangelism of the Jews. A great example that we were given, or several examples would be, and I, I don't know, I guess I have one or two here, but... Peter and John preaching in, in Solomon's portico. Peter and John preaching at the day of Pentecost, which actually preceded Solomon's portico. Uh, Peter and John preaching the gospel before the Sanhedrin. Those are examples. You've got the day of Pentecost. You've got Solomon's portico. You've got before the Sanhedrin. Those are examples of how God was presenting the gospel to the Jews, which were headquartered, the true full-blown Jews, historical Jews. They were headquartered in Jerusalem. And so those three times, those three events, experiences, whatever, and I know that Peter preached the gospel in Solomon's portico many times, but those were all part of God's first stage in bringing the message of Jesus, the message of the cross, the message of redemption to Jews, okay? So that's kind of the first stage. And the second stage is the evangelism of the half-Jews, uh, we would refer to them as Hellenists. They were uh, both Greek and Jewish, if, if you will. Uh, examples of this evangelism to the half-Jews would be Stephen preaching in Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem, and then again before the Sanhedrin, I suppose you could consider that Acts 6 and chapter 7. Uh, Philip preaching in Samaria, Hellenistic place. Uh, Philip preaching in Azotos and in Caesarea and all the cities in between Acts 8. Those are all, when Philip went out and preached the gospel in Samaria and all these other places, he was preaching to half-Jews. He was preaching to Hellenists. He was preaching to, like, Greek-style Jews. And then even Paul, when Paul was preaching, or actually his name was Saul at that point, was preaching in Damascus, he was preaching in Hellenistic synagogues. When he came to Jerusalem, he was preaching in Hellenistic synagogues, Acts chapter 9. Stage 1 to the Jews, it all pretty much happens in Jerusalem. Stage 2, Samaria, Zotos, all those communities in old Philistia along the Mediterranean. So stage 1, stage 2. 
Now, the activation of the third stage literally results in Gentiles being saved in an unprecedented way. Prior to Acts chapter 10, this is really interesting and neat if you study the Bible and if you look for these kinds of things. But prior to Acts chapter 10, the Bible gives examples of Gentiles being saved, but they're incredibly minimal. Okay? We see Gentile non-Jewish people being saved by God throughout the Bible, but the examples of that are, are very, very minimal. Think of people like Rahab. Think of a person like uh, the woman Ruth. How about Naaman? And some people would disagree with this particular person, but I don't, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, he was a Babylonian king, but you should see how he praises God after he was brought back to his senses. No pagan praises God the way that he did. And so there's a good chance that he was, he was saved. But those would be some of the examples in the Old Testament. And they're singular onesie twosies, one here, one there, what have you. And then also in the New Testament, we see an example with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, he was not a Jew by descent, he was an Ethiopian. And yet he was saved. So he was a Gentile. And there was also an example in Luke 7 with a, a Roman centurion. Okay, my point is, is that prior to Acts 10, God saving Gentiles, there's minimal examples of that. It's like God's entire redemptive work and everything that he's done in his relationship and fellowship and interaction has been entirely with the Jews. Throughout, most, uh, throughout all of the Old Testament. doesn't mean he doesn't interact with Gentile kings and all of that, but it's been about the Jews. It's been about the redemption of the Jews. And that's just a biblical fact if you look at the Bible. But from Acts chapter 10 and beyond, God begins to save Gentiles in droves. That third stage is initialized the gospel is now brought to Gentiles in an unprecedented way, and God saves Gentiles in an unprecedented way. Like I said, not one, two here, three here, this king, this Ethiopian eunuch, but piles and piles and groups. It's quite extraordinary. And how does he do it? How does he save Gentiles? How does he present the gospel to him? He does it through the preaching ministries of people like Peter. That's Acts chapter 10. Saul or Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Epaphras, Timothy, and Titus. Those are the men that he used to spread the gospel and plant churches to reach Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then, so we're leading into that. Stage three is the evangelism of the Gentiles. Examples of that, Peter preaching in Caesarea, Acts 10. Saul and Barnabas preaching in Cyprus, Acts 13. Saul and Barnabas preaching in Antioch at uh, Pisidios, Pisidios is how it's pronounced. It sounds weird, and I don't like to do it the other way. It's like Pisidia. It's like that's just like, that's not how it's pronounced. It's Pisidios, Pisidios. Acts thirteen. That's where that happens. Saul and Barnabas preaching in Iconium. Acts fourteen. Paul, Timothy, and Silas preaching in Philippi. Acts sixteen. Paul and Silas preaching in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Acts seventeen. And on and on and on. Paul's missionary journeys. 
Think of those things. You know, when you read those books, Paul, the Pauline epistles, those letters, those, are, those churches were planted during Acts. I mean, in a way, I mean, when we see him going to Philippi and all, they were planting churches then. They were reaching Gentiles. Now, it's important for us to note that when God activated an evangelistic stage, he did not cancel out the previous stage or stages. In other words, God was evangelizing Jews, half-Jews, and Gentiles at the same time. Stages two and three basically represent a broadening of God's evangelistic plan rather than isolated periods where God targeted a single group. This is illustrated through Paul's missionary journeys. When he went into a new city, he checked to see if there was a Jewish or Hellenistic synagogue present. And if there were, he went there first. So don't think of these stages as, okay, first it was the Jews, done with them. Now I'm going to move to the half-Jews, hmm. done with them. Now we're on the Gentiles and still saving Gentiles today, right? No, no, no. God is simultaneously reaching all three of those people groups, which pretty much includes the entire world. The Jewish world, the half-Jewish world, don't know if that even exists anymore. Is there such a thing as a Hellenist? I doubt it. And Gentiles, which is the majority of the population in the world. It's quite extraordinary. These are just three examples of how Acts 10 records a turning point in redemptive history. We can see God now begin to bring the gospel to Gentiles in an unprecedented, extraordinary way. Why? Because his salvation is for the Jew first, the half-Jew, and for the Gentile. It's for the world, not just one group. It's amazing. And then, so the first example was the marking the turning point of redemptive history. The second example would be Acts 10 illustrates the initialization of the new covenant for Gentiles. What is the new covenant? The new covenant is basically a promise given by God to the nation of Israel and to the Gentile nations of the world. It includes things like the forgiveness of sin relationship, fellowship with God, new hearts made of flesh that have God's law written upon them, everlasting life in the kingdom of God, God promising to be with these people. I mean, that's basically what the new covenant is. Jesus is the new covenant mediator, Hebrews 12, 24. As mediator, he brought the new covenant to the world through his incarnation, and he bought the new covenant for the world with his blood. Now, the Jews, from a national perspective, have yet to receive the new covenant through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. As a nation, they have not done that. Today, there are fewer than 15,000 Messianic Jews, Jews that believe in Jesus in Israel. But the Jewish population alone, not including any Arabs, is 6 million. Only 15,000 out of 6 million Jews believe in Jesus. It's quite obvious that they haven't received, repented and received the Savior and accepted 
the terms of the new covenant or what was bought for them. They have not done it yet. Now, according to the scriptures, there seems to be a day in the future when the nation of Israel will yield to Christ and receive the new covenant. Now, for billions of Gentiles, and that really depends on your eschatology, I believe it's going to happen. I'm just not sure how it does or what the timeline is. But God is going to do something for the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about it, I believe. Now, for billions of Gentiles, however, throughout the world, the new covenant has become a reality and present-day promise rather than a future one. All who are in Christ, every Christian, every member of Christ's church is a receiver and member of the new covenant and all of its blessings. And our chapter, chapter 10, illustrates the initialization of the new covenant for Gentile people, for non-Jewish people, okay? When you bring the gospel to Gentile people, you are presenting to them the new covenant. It was already bought for Gentile people, for the elect, for all people who would believe in Christ. It was already purchased for them, whether they're aware of it or not. So that work was done. It was a done deal. The transaction was made, but bringing it to them and making them aware of it and repenting and believing in Jesus, they become covenant members. That's how it works. Every Christian, every person who calls on the name of Jesus, and that would be Jewish person, half-Jewish person, or Gentile person. But our chapter marks this incredible initialization for Gentiles, an unprecedented way. Now, according to scholars, the first Gentile person to be converted to Christianity, okay, according to the New Testament, the first person to become a covenant member in the New Testament was the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, as I said, the gospel had been presented to pretty much only Jews. And then it's presented to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he surrenders to Jesus. Becomes a part of God's new covenant. So he was kind of the first example of this Gentile being brought into and included in the new covenant. He was, which is phenomenal. Now, this would mean that everyone that was saved prior to Acts 8.36 was either a Jew or half-Jew Hellenist. It's amazing to me. When we think of Pentecost, we think of these people from all over in every walk of life and everything, but there were Jews there. The gospel was being presented at the day of Pentecost to only Jews and half-Jews, Hellenists, whoever, not Gentiles. Gentiles would not be at the temple worshiping God during Passover. So it's extraordinary. Now... Thousands. Now keep in mind this, there were thousands and thousands of people converted through the preaching and miracles of Peter, John, Stephen, and Philip, as well as through the scattered believers who gossiped the gospel, maybe even through Saul's preaching in Damascus and Jerusalem, but before the Ethiopian eunuch, they were all Jewish. Isn't that extraordinary? You see how significant chapter 10 is? Uh, It's I'd make a silly joke about it, but God is about to go covenant wild on the pork-eating population. He's about to save non-Jewish yahoos like you and me. He is now 
in chapter 10, shifting the message, the good news of the gospel to the rest of the world. That's extraordinary. Doesn't that make chapter 10 extremely significant? This is where it didn't happen in the gospels. Huh? It's Jesus. What are you talking? No. It's happening now, here. Pretty amazing. Example three of why 10 is significant, important. It shows how God began to apply the Abrahamic promise to all the nations of the world. In Genesis 22, 17 to 18, God promised to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham because Abraham did what? Believed and obeyed God. When God said, I'm promising to bless, who was he referring to as far as the blessing? Who would the blessing come through? His descendants. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the church. Every True Christian, every person that's a Christian is a descendant of Abraham in a spiritual way. Jesus, the Messiah, came through his lineage. And God said to Abraham that I'm going to bless the world through your lineage. I'm going to bring worldwide blessings through people of your lineage, primarily through Jesus Christ, through what? The gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then I'm going to bring that blessing to the world through the church, which carries the good news, carries the message of the gospel. Every believer, as I said, is a descendant of Abraham, even Gentile believers. We have been grafted in. Redemption and its many blessings are not intended for Jews only, as they still typically believe. The Jewish people still tend to kind of hold on to that line of thinking. It's not intended for them alone, but for everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ. I quote this verse all the time, Revelation 7, 9. It says that God's elect is an innumerable, let me articulate, in is an innumerable amount from every tribe and tongue. Jews, half-Jews, Gentiles. It's a mix. It's Heinz 57. There's all kinds of people there, man. That's a future glimpse of what the church is going to be like when it's standing before God and worshiping Him, and it's comprised of all sorts of people from every tribe and tongue. In Acts 10, we will see for the first time the gospel proclaimed to and received by large numbers of Gentiles. And that shows how God began to apply the Abrahamic promise to all the nations of the world. Why? Because the church, how does he do it? The church brings the gospel to the rest of the world. And the gospel is the greatest blessing the world has ever seen. It's the greatest blessing, greatest treasure in the universe. God's redemption is the best thing that people can get and receive. And so the church brings the gospel out, and that blesses all the nations of the world. Wherever the church goes and proclaims the gospel, blessing comes with it because God is saving people. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, this is not to say that God has never before 
Okay, prior to what we're seeing in 10, blessed Gentile nations. He has, think of Egypt. Oh, they were hardcore pagans, crazy, whatever. Oh, yeah, think back during the time of Joseph when he came, and because of the fact that he could interpret dreams, the, the nation and country of Egypt was preserved, was it not? Did God not bless the Egyptians? Of course he did. He was blessing them before Joseph ever showed up. They were worshiping all the stupid sticks and things they made, but God was blessing them. The fact that they were breathing was a blessing, that they had provision, that they had to think of Babylon. Well, this Nebuchadnezzar, and it was a pagan thing. God wasn't blessing them. What are you talking about? Then why did God get upset with Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar tried to take the glory for the kingdom that was before him? That was God's kingdom, not Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He punished him for that. He disciplined him. Why? Because he was blessing that nation. He used that nation strategically to discipline his people, to sack Jerusalem and to take his people out of there for 70 years. God blessed Babylon. He did. Oh, no, he did. Oh, he only blesses those who obey and those who do. Does he not cause the rain to fall on the blessed, on the holy, and on the wicked? It falls on both. How about Assyria? What happened in Assyria? Nineveh. Could have just let them get annihilated. And he sent a very rebellious guy who liked to spend time in the belly of fishes. Weird. Weird guy. You know? And he sent him to do what? What are you doing? Understand that the most holy high God is going to annihilate you if you don't turn from these pagan ways. We're so bad. We're so sorry. God blessed Persia. Many nations today enjoy the blessings of God and don't even realize it. Every nation does. God isn't only the God of those nations that yield to him, and there isn't one that does. And don't you think for a minute that this country does. This country hates him. Oh, there's a remnant of people here that love Jesus. But for the most part, this country is antagonistic and hates and despises God. Oh, not America. It's a Christian nation. You are a fool if you believe that. This country despises him just like China and every other country. But he still blesses it, doesn't he? Wow. What a merciful God we have. God gives rain and sunlight and crops and animals for food and so on. All the nations are blessed by God, whether they recognize it or not. But God's new covenant blessings are far beyond his universal or providential blessings, way beyond, whole different level here, folks. His universal or providential blessings do not include things like eternal life, citizenship in his kingdom, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, unspeakable, unshakable joy, that great peace that transcends all understanding, and fellowship with God and with his 
people. Only his new covenant, new covenant blessings include those things. And God promised Abraham that through his descendants, Jesus and the church, he would dispense his new covenant blessings to people from every nation. And chapter 10 marks the beginning of the distribution of God's new covenant blessings to the nations. Wow. Why is that? So that the Abrahamic promise would be fulfilled. Because God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. Every time a sinner repents and believes, no matter where they're at, no matter what their background, no matter who they are, what tribe, tongue, nation, every time one repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, the Abrahamic promise comes closer and closer to being fulfilled. And one day, when the nation of Israel finally turns to Jesus and the full number of the Gentiles is in, the Abrahamic promise will be completely fulfilled. Messianic Jews and Gentile Christians will then together enjoy the kingdom of God forever. We will worship and rule with Christ forevermore. All, all of these sorts of people, hallelujah. Another thing that is extraordinary about Acts 10 is that the things that I've mentioned basically started with two men and two visions from God. Why? You're going to do something this big with a handful of guys? Yep. I'm like, I'm reading this and I'm like, and I'm reading about this guy and I'm reading about this guy and I'm thinking, okay, shouldn't the stars realign or something? Aren't dragons going to fly down, drop Bibles? Something's got to happen big, right? No. It all happens. It all begins. It all starts with a couple of dudes. Why is that? Because our God is a God who has chosen to begin many, if not all, large-scale endeavors with very little. Whoa. God populated the world through two people, Adam and Eve. God repopulated the world after He annihilated it through Noah and his children. God took Abraham and created a nation from him. God took five loaves and two fish, multiplied them and fed 5,000 men. He did it again and fed 4,000 men in two different places, just a handful of food. As countrymen would say, a happy meal. I've always loved that one. He took a happy meal and hooked it up and turned it into a big old fat buffet. Fed all these people. God took one church, one church in Jerusalem, scattered it through persecution and planted countless churches throughout the world. There are 360,000 Christian churches in the United States right now. Somebody got a calculator. One church, Jerusalem, Saul comes, persecutes it. Acts chapter 10, Gentiles. 360,000 churches in America alone. There was more. Unfortunately, they're on the decline. God sent one Savior. 
and 12 disciples. And there are 2 billion disciples worldwide. Why does God like, why has he chosen to start small? Because he loves it when people marvel at his ability to multiply. And he loves it when they worship him for doing it. This principle is a great, tremendous encouragement to me. I often wrestle with feelings of insignificance. I often wrestle with feelings of being ineffective as a minister. And I know some of you are saying, don't depend on your feelings. That's the first problem. Well, they're pretty hard to control and manage at times, are they not? Do you ever wrestle with feeling insignificant? Maybe ineffective? Maybe that you're lacking in an area? Don't we all wrestle with that? When you work in ministry like I do, it's something that you wrestle with all the time. It's something that I often wrestle with. Many things contribute to it. But one thing that I've learned in my own life is that God has consistently grown the smaller things into larger things. When I first started in ministry, I began as a facilities employee. I fixed toilets, urinals. No, I never ate the mint. I never, I never, I looked at it and I thought, it smells kind of good. I had to put those dumb things in there. And Bruce is like, ooh, that's nasty work. My first ministry job was a, a facilities position. <laughs> yeah, a facilities technologist. <laughs> right? I remember my friend, he's like, dude, I, I'm a hydroceramic engineer. And I'm like, dude, that sounds amazing. I wash dishes. I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. I knew there was a catch. <clears throat> Meet me at Ridgeways, you know. That was my very first ministry job. I was a facilities employee. I had to do all kinds of things. And you know what? didn't bother me. I didn't go, oh, I got to fix a toilet. You know, it was at a school, so you can imagine how much worse that is, right? Just don't think about that. My next ministry job was in the visual arts, okay? And started to do something that I really enjoyed a lot more than fixing urinals. In fact, I had these visions of taking urinals and making them sculptures and stuff, and I was like, eh, I probably won't go down too good at a church. And then my next ministry job, I became a pastor to junior high students. And then I stand before you now as the church planting pastor and lead pastor of this church. It's pretty extraordinary, the process that God has taken me through starts me in a very humble, small place and teaches me and trains me and grows me and then appoints me and puts me in different places. And he's just kind of multiplying the whole time. I mean, who would have ever thought that I would have been a Christian, let alone a pastor? And think about this principle in terms of your own spiritual development. 
right? Think about it. When I first got saved, how many books are there in the Bible? 58. No. Yeah, it was close, right? Not bad for a first-time guess. I, I didn't really know a whole lot. I still don't today, but, you know. But I started here, and then God has been good to me and grown my knowledge, grown my wisdom, trained me, taught me, applied His Word, opened my mind, opened my heart, and I had a starting point 11 years ago, and here I am today. I'm not the same man of God that I was then, and my knowledge and wisdom has grown. God took me at a very small place and has multiplied me. That's what He does. He takes small things. Think of the parable of the seeds and things. Mustard seed, smallest seed known in the Jewish world at that time. And it can become a mighty tree where birds can rest. God is a God who takes small things and multiplies this. We've all seen these things in our own lives. I want you to be encouraged by what I've been saying. You may feel that your service, that your influence, that your knowledge, understanding of Scripture, whatever it is, and this transcends the boundaries of these things that I've mentioned. There are so many other ways to become depressed over smallness. You may feel, you may sense a smallness and an insignificance. You may feel ineffective especially in your pagan workplace. I'm just not making an impact there. I'm just not doing it. It's not happening. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work in your life and working through it. He is. You know, we might be one of the smallest churches in Modesto. (laughs) We could be. I mean, there's more people standing in line at Krispy Kreme when it opened than there are in here right now. I was there. No, I wasn't. I didn't go. I sent my wife down there. (laughs) She was there. She was like, this is stupid. Why am I here? And then she got the donut. She goes, I realize why I've come. And now they're gone. We may be one of the smallest churches in Benesto. I, I, I don't know. But I believe that God is here. I believe that God is working. I believe that God is preparing us for greater things in this community. I do. I believe it. I believe it. We've only just begun. And if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, mountains can be moved. We need to rejoice in who we are in Christ as individuals and as a church. He has us right where He wants us. And He is leading us. He is the good shepherd. And He is the great God that multiplies. Now, so far, we've made a case for why Acts 10 is such an important chapter in the Bible. We've now set the stage for our exposition of it. I'd like to spend the rest of our time working through the very first verse. Tried to get beyond that. Didn't happen. I'm going to read it aloud and then break it down. And it's quite extraordinary. 
10.1. I will be reading from the glorious ESV. I love you. Some of you will not be reading from this glorious translation. Um, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And I'm going to go through to two, my bad. Because that would make no sense to stop there. It was, <laughs> I don't even know why I did that. I'm going to stop at one. No, I'm not. I'm going to go to two. Watch. I'm going to go to three now. I only wrote for one and two, so. All right, so two, describing Cornelius. He says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. <laughs> I didn't notice. Hold was on the end there. With all his household. And it says, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay? One and two. You got it? You there? All right. Now, the first thing that Luke does in verses 1 and 2 is he introduces us to one of the key characters, one of these people, one of the key characters of chapter 10. His name is what? How often do you say that name? Have you ever met anyone named that? You've met a Cornelius? Seriously? Huh? He was on Soul Train? I don't think it's the same guy. I don't even know what Soul Train is. I don't know what that means. Moonwalked. So it's Annie Moonwalked. I've never heard that name. I've never heard of anyone named that. I've never met anyone with that name. That's an interesting name to me. Interesting name. Cornelius. We're introduced to Cornelius, and then Luke lists six key things about him. Right there in the text, right there in 1 and 2. Actually, probably, now it's 1 and 2. It's not just 1, it's not just 2, it's both. He lists key things, six of them. Now let's dissect, look, identify, whatever. Let's nail them all down, all right? The first thing that we see in the text right there is that Cornelius was from Caesarea. Caesarea. Caesarea is a port city located about 55 miles, I love the precision, 55 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Okay, it's on the Mediterranean. It's just south of Mount Carmel. Very popular, well-known mountain in the Old Testament. So it's up on the Mediterranean, 55 miles, kind of, you know, northwest. Did I say northwest? Yeah, northwest. That's where it's at. You can envision it in your mind's eye. Now, it was built, Caesarea was built by Herod the Great in 25 BC, and he built it as a tribute to Caesar Augustus. That's why it's called Caesarea, Caesarea. It was built, it's a tribute city. It was built for the magnificence and glory of Caesar Augustus, okay? He was the reigning Caesar during that time. Pretty amazing that Herod the Great would actually build a city as a tribute to this guy. Not just a statue, not a little plaque at the end of McHenry, George Lucas action, a city for him. Wow, that's some serious political smooching, right? Huh? Why else did he do it? I really like him. No, you don't. You're doing it to get some political favor. 
And so he built this magnificent city for him. It's pretty awesome. It wasn't like Rome or anything like that, but it was still a pretty cool place. It was dedicated to the Caesar. Today, it's part of the Israeli territory and has a population of about 4,500 people. So it's still there. It's still there, and people live there, almost 5,000 people. So it's not a metropolis. It's not, you know, a big, massive, insane, you know, metropolitan-style city. It's a smaller place, but it's still pretty cool, or at least it was back in this day. Now, Caesarea was where Philip, the deacon, remember him? Studied him earlier? That's the city that he settled in after he preached the gospel in all of the towns below Caesarea, all the way down to Azotos. Okay, so this is the place where Philip went at the end of his kind of evangelistic tour and planted himself and raised a family and probably planted a church or was involved in something there. This is where he settled. In fact, he may have even been living in Caesarea at the same time that Cornelius lived there. I have no doubt. Did they know each other? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. So you get a little bit of an idea of what Caesarea was like. Coastal city, really pretty, built for the Caesar, so you know it was kind of opulent and cool. Okay? Second thing that we see is Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian cohort. Cohort. A Roman legion at full strength consisted of 6,000 men and was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men each. A centurion commanded 100 of these men, and each legion therefore had 60 centurions who were considered the backbone, literally the backbone of the Roman army. Would we think of in our terms as a sergeant being the backbone? Paul, you were a military man. Would a centurion been similar to like a, a sergeant maybe? A centurion would have been significantly higher. Okay. What could we compare him to? Maybe a commander we could compare him to? Very cool. Okay, so now you... Okay, a commander, right? Okay. Maybe I've heard someone say that sergeants are the backbone of the... I don't know. Maybe, maybe I haven't heard that. But this guy was in a position was, that was considered to be kind of spinal to the Roman army. Very important, very key, very significant position this Cornelius was in. Very, very... Amazing. Now, <laughs> the Roman historian um, Polybius describes centurions as soldiers who stand their ground and keep their post even to the point of death, rather than being like daredevils who initiate attacks in open battle. Okay, so centurions weren't like Rambo. Okay, you, you know, you watch the movies and you see this guy and he goes in and annihilates a town. These daredevil soldiers, you know, the guys that went in and got bin Laden. You know, those are daredevils, man, Delta Force or SEALs, whatever they are. The centurions were not like those guys. They were like a pillar. They would stand their ground no matter what and not move no matter what flood of enemy was coming their way. They would die in that position at that place it's pretty amazing these guys were kind of stoic and solid and and like a rock and they just stood and held the line pretty amazing 
like the other centurions in the New Testament, because there is an example or two of them, Cornelius had reached his rank by proving to be strong, proving to be responsible, and a reliable man. Okay, you had to earn your way into the position of centurion. You had to prove yourself, all right? You didn't just get hired for that job or just move into it frivolously. You had to prove yourself. You had to be unique. You had to be special. You were not like the common soldier. You were an exemplary soldier. What are we doing here? We're building the character of Cornelius. Are you following me here? This guy was a stud, okay? Just put it in American dumb terms. This guy was a stud. He was. Now, Notice how the text says that Cornelius was of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort. Doesn't give a generalized centurion kind of thing here. He says that he's from a particular group, a particular cohort. This makes him special. The Italian cohort was based in Caesarea and had been appointed to protect the city as well as the Roman uh, procurator. Did I say that right? I hate that word. Procurator, who resided there. Okay? The city, this particular city, again, was a special city because it had a Roman procurator there. And it was a city that was devoted to Caesar Augustus. It was a special city. It had been named after Roman Caesar. To be chosen to serve there was a tremendous honor and privilege. This was the kind of assignment that enlisted men wanted some scholars even suggest that cornelius may have served as the bodyguard for the procurator okay so only the italian cohort was assigned to caesarea that was the group that guarded that city and their leader and this particular man cornelius was a part of that group this was the elite this was the delta force this was the navy seal group of the Roman army here that was chosen to protect this particular place and this particular leader. And our man here, Cornelius, was a part of it. That's extraordinary. Well, we're talking about a guy here that's devoted. We're talking about a guy here that's strong. We're talking about a guy who has his mental faculties. We're talking about a guy who lives a proper sort of life. He honors the Roman way, if you will, and what have you. I mean, this guy is a a solid dude. Pretty amazing. Third thing, Cornelius, now this is where it gets crazy. He was devout and feared God. Huh? Devout means that Cornelius, it means several things, but one thing that it means is that Cornelius was an uncircumcised Gentile convert to the Jewish faith. This is absolutely extraordinary here. When... (laughs) primarily because of this, when Italians were carried into provinces to live in warfare, they ran to and fro like hungry wolves to get some prey. Out of the entire Roman army, the Italian cohort, that group, anywhere where there were Italians, they were brutal and they were savage. Calvin said they had about as much religion as beasts. Okay? That's the Italian angle. And this guy was Italian, part of the Italian cohort, and yet he what? Feared God. He was devout. Extraordinary. 
He wasn't like this ravenous wolf, this beast like the other men probably in his company. Pretty extraordinary. He was devout and he feared God. Let me break down devout a little bit more. Devout means that Cornelius was devoted to God, to God's word, and to God's people. What a difficult and awkward position to be in as a Roman centurion, right? I mean, think about that for a moment. How can this guy be a centurion with the Navy SEALs and be a Jew in his heart and mind? Be devout and fear God. How awkward. What a position to be in. Why? Because these are the guys that smashed the Jews and held them in bondage. You know, Rome was the governing, officiating, you know, nation, country, empire over the Jewish world. And the Jews hated the Romans as much as they hated tax collectors, if not more. They despised them. And here's a man who is every bit Roman, and a soldier even, and then he's also devout and loves God. (laughs) Devout and feared God means that Cornelius believed the truth and lived it out to the best of his ability. Devout and feared God signifies literally that the grace of God was at work in Cornelius' life well before the events of Acts 10 took place place by grace god led cornelius to the truth and to the religion that god was actually working through he was working through judaism still have you ever stopped to think of how much your christian faith is really jewish where do you think the christians figured out how to worship and do all these things and all that they copied the jews for crying out loud the old testament you know, our faith has been, been touched. Yeah, it's in Jesus, no doubt. I'm not going to contest that. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. But so much of what we do is, is Jewish. It comes from the Old Testament. It's a phenomenal, amazing thing to think about. But what a difficult and awkward position for a Roman centurion to be in. Devout and feared God means that he loved God, loved God's truth. He loved God's people. By grace, he was led to do those things. By grace, he was led to the truth and led to the religion that God was working through. By grace, Cornelius understood his need for forgiveness as well as atonement and the sacrificial system. You've got to be Jewish. You've got to do those things. You can't be Jewish and not do them. By grace, Cornelius understood that he was to live his life in a way that honored and glorified God. By grace, Cornelius believed that God was going to send a Savior into the world. That's what the Jews believed. As a devout half-Jew, because he wasn't circumcised, Cornelius was awaiting the arrival of the Redeemer, just like all of the Jewish people were. That's what he was doing. That's what devout means. He just didn't know that God had already sent the Redeemer. But he was about to find out. Man. Another thing that grace the grace of God led him to do was to be the spiritual head of his family. This leads to the fourth key thing, Cornelius' household feared God. 
Cornelius led his family in the knowledge of God and trained them to fear and obey God. He was the priest of his home. There is an unprecedented amount of men in the church today that have shirked this responsibility. I've counseled dozens and dozens of wives and mothers over the years that complain about their husband's lack of leadership in the home, lack of spiritual activity. My husband is too busy with work. My husband, you know, he skips church all the time. My husband never prays with us. My husband never reads his Bible. My husband never talks about spiritual things. My husband doesn't serve at our church. My husband doesn't want to give any of our treasure to the church. My husband doesn't like fellowship events. He doesn't like hanging around with all those Christians. He loves Jesus, but he doesn't love them. It is time for men to step up. It is time for men to lead. It is time for men to become the priests of their homes. The consequences of not doing so are so great and so they do such unspeakable damage in the home. And God takes these things very, very seriously. 1 Tim 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Was Paul referring to mere physical provision like food, clothing, and shelter alone, or did he mean spiritual things as well? Well, the end of chapter 4 shows us that Paul included spiritual things. He told Timothy to keep, right at the end in the context, to keep close watch over his life and teaching. What does that mean? Dads are to provide spiritual guidance for their wives, for their households, for their families, for their children. They are to train their kids to live lives that are honoring and pleasing and glorifying to God. If dads do not provide this instruction, they have what? Denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever because they're not providing what their family needs the most. Cornelius, a Jew, even did these things. I don't know what goes through the minds of Christian men in their households if they think they can just skate through life and never assume the role of of priest and never assume the responsibilities and love their families with Jesus and love their families with the gospel. They think that they can just get through and that and that they're going to be welcomed with open arms into heaven? I know it's not about works. I know it. We are saved by grace through faith. But grace produces faith, and faith produces spiritual heads of their homes. Dang it. I'm sick of men. Sick of them. Tired of it. We need to step up. And maybe you're not married yet and you don't have a household, but you're working on that and that's going to happen in the future. Hear my words. Don't you shirk that responsibility. Don't do it. Even as a single, this is truth for you. (coughs) Cornelius did these things well. He was the priest of his home. He led his household to fear, glorify, honor God, and he didn't even have Christ. He didn't even have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. His 
household feared God does yours. And if you're in Christ, you are without excuse. And I believe many of you do, and I rejoice in that. That you lead your house, you are the priest, you do what you're supposed to do. You model faith to your wife and to your kids and to your families. You love them well with the gospel. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But you do the best that you can. Praise God for you. Fifth thing. Cornelius gave alms generously to the people. Cornelius was a doer of the word, not a mere hearer. Because of his knowledge of the Torah, he adopted the ancient Jewish practice of generosity. It's commanded all throughout the Old Testament. He gave alms. He gave money to those in need. Some translations actually place Jewish before people. So the rendering becomes gave alms generously to what? The Jewish people. Maybe your translation says that. My ESV doesn't and I wish it did. Maybe I'll switch to another one. No, I'm not going to. He gave alms generously to the Jewish people. That seems to better line up with what Luke intended. It was the Jewish people that Cornelius gave to. Cornelius had a heart for the Jewish people, the people of God. He considered the Jews his churchmen, and he provided for their needs. This reminds me of Acts 2.45, where the Christians were providing for each other's needs. Where do you suppose the Christians got the idea for that? from the Jews. That's what they did. That's Old Testament practice. It's beautiful. Things like hospitality and generosity are commanded in the Torah of the Old Testament, and the Jewish people practice them regularly. We could even go as far as to say something like this, that Cornelius basically backed his faith with good works. Faith in good works is a biblical principle, not just a New Testament concept. God has always required that good works follow faith. Faith is what produces good works. The two go in tandem. Faith apart from works is dead faith, James 2.17. And works apart from faith are filthy rags, Isaiah 64.6. These are biblical principles, my friends, my beloved. They're not just New Testament concepts. And what? Cornelius lived them out. Lastly, Cornelius prayed continually to God. Is this guy rocking our worlds or what? Seriously, are you looking at this? This is like the Christian training manual, and it's not even a Christian. Cornelius 6, Cornelius prayed continually to God. What does that mean? Cornelius was a prayerful person. As a half-Jew, he no doubt prayed three times a day as other Jews did. Morning, afternoon, and evening were the designated prayer times. The term continually implies that Cornelius prayed all the time rather than just at the designated times. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul exhorted, what he said. He said, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That's what Cornelius did. He was always praying. He was a prayerful guy. He did it at the times that he was prescribed to do because keep in mind, Judaism was filled with rules, but he also prayed in between. 
What did he pray for? What did Cornelius pray for? Well, the most common prayer for the Jews was deliverance. They were always praying for God to send their Savior to rescue them from who? Their enemies, more particularly at this time, the Romans. Did Cornelius pray the same things? Wouldn't that be awkward? Lord, deliver me and your people from me and my people? (laughs) I'm part of the problem, but I love you. I mean, think about that for a moment. How awkward would that be, right? Oh, 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 deliver the people. I've been grafted in. Deliver me from me because I'm part of the epidemic. I don't know what he was singing to God. I don't know what he was praying, but how do you pray for that? Deliver your people. Deliver me from me and the Romans. How awkward. I don't know. I don't think he prayed for that. I don't know what he prayed for. The Jews had a couple of prayer liturgies back then, the Shema and the Tefillah. Maybe he prayed, you know, said those things. They recited those things throughout the day. Maybe he said those things and then prayed after those things or something. I don't know. It doesn't say. He could have been praying those things. It's hard to tell. I did a little bit of research on it. I tried to. I couldn't come up with anything. It seems like the Jews didn't really organize their prayers till after the destruction of Jerusalem. But he was a praying, prayerful man. In closing, these are berries, just so you know. They're not junior mints or something else. And they're not helping. I was wanting flavor and I got nothing. In closing, I wonder if you, and I didn't until I read a commentary, I wonder if you picked up on this. This is fascinating to me. In the previous chapter, Luke told us about a follower of Jesus Christ named Tabitha. He told us about her amazing faith and how she was active in giving her time, her talent, and her treasure. Okay? That's what Acts 9 ends with. Did you notice how Luke did the same thing with Cornelius? Luke actually, here we go, prepare to have your mind blown. Luke actually recorded more details about Cornelius' faith than he did Tabitha's. And he was a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. Now that is extremely interesting To me, why would Luke give us two very similar examples through two very different people, through two very different, not very different, but uniquely different religions? Why would he give us these two examples from one religion and another, two people, separate people, back to back? You see how they're threaded together there? Keep in mind, too, that when these scriptures were written, they weren't written in chapter form. It was one flowing narrative. We divided them in chapters centuries ago. So this is like the narrative and the story is just kind of continuing. Now I'm talking about Tabitha, now I'm talking about Cornelius, parallels. This is very interesting to me. And I think this is Luke's point. Bigger than that, this is God's point. This is what God wants to convey, communicate, apply. Our faith 
is to be like Tabitha's faith. Isn't that what rang true last week to some degree? We listened to that message. We saw this beautiful woman of God. And we were all compelled to serve Jesus as she did. Our faith is to be like Tabitha's faith. It is what? To be accompanied by godly behavior and good works. Tabitha loved God and others and gave generously to those in need. She made an impact on her community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. In the power of the Holy Spirit, let's do as she did. But our faith is to be like Cornelius' faith. <laughs> it is to be accompanied by godly behavior and good works. Cornelius was devout, God-fearing, the priest of his home, generous, and a man of prayer. Cornelius was godlier and more generous than most Christians are today, and he didn't even have Jesus. Did you hear me? I hope that jacks you up, because it jacked me up when I read it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get on the ledge here, because you might throw me off of it. Cornelius lived his life in a more gospel-centered way than Christians do today, and he didn't have the gospel. Whoa. So what we've been given here are two examples of faith, faith that was marked by godly behavior and generosity, the example of Tabitha, the Christian, and the example of Cornelius, the religious Jews. Both examples are meant to get our attention. Both examples are meant to convict us if we aren't honoring God through our lifestyle and giving or to affirm us if we are. The question is, are you like Tabitha and Cornelius? Are you exhibiting godly behavior and doing good works? You may not think that we, we you know, I, we just can't learn from Cornelius because he, he doesn't love Jesus. He was a Jew. Yeah, you can learn from him. And you should learn from him. Why do you think Luke included all those details about him just to build up his character? Do you think that Luke did not understand that Cornelius' works were filthy rags before a holy and perfect God? He knew that. Another thing, it is true that religion can lead us to engage in these things. It can lead us to engage in some form of godly behavior and good works. But religion cannot save a person. If it could, we would not be reading about Cornelius because God would have been perfectly pleased with what he did and left him alone. Cornelius needed a savior. Chapter 10 speaks from the mountaintops. You cannot be saved by your works. You cannot be saved by your godly behavior. You cannot. If it were so, we wouldn't be reading about Cornelius, would we? Amen to that. And that will be further illustrated as we move through the text in the coming weeks. He needed a Savior. He needed Jesus. And Tabitha, on the other hand, 
had Jesus and her godly behavior and good works were inspired, propelled, fueled, motivated by her knowledge of what Jesus Christ had done for her by the gospel. Luke 12.48 says, To whom much has been given, of him much will be required. If you have been given Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have been given the greatest treasure in the universe, infinite riches, and much is required of you. You are required to give yourself wholeheartedly to Christ and to His cause. You are required to put your flesh to death daily. You are required to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord daily. You are required to exhibit godly behavior and to do good works daily. You are required to be a doer of God's word, not a mere hearer. Men, lead your homes. Family, give generously. Give of your time, talent, and treasure. Give yourself to Christ and to the cause of Christ wholeheartedly. Don't be lukewarm. Surrender. Do you not realize what has been done and secured for you in Christ Jesus? All you need. The word of God beckons you. Give yourself. Be the priest of your home. Devote yourself. Give generously without fear. And that's what I learned through this passage. Really piggybacks off of last week. I wonder if the reason why God keeps bringing these things up is because He knows that we can give more of ourselves. He knows that some of us aren't. And He's trying to reach us.